This message by Walt Alexander was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Walt serves as a pastor on staff with Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Privilege for us to gather this morning. You can go ahead and flip to 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to look at a number of verses from this text this morning. 1 Corinthians 7. I'm again reading in verse 17. The Apostle Paul writes, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at his time of his call uncircumcised, let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he's called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price to not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I will give my judgment as one who by God's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And let those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. That's the word of God that we're going to tackle this morning. Well... Just a little bit of a disclaimer, this, this message is going to be a little bit different, a little atypical. Typically on a Sunday morning, we preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. However, several months ago, I emailed our senior pastor and asked him if I could preach on singleness and marriage. Now, I wanted to do this for several reasons. One is we live in an immensely important cultural moment. As, you, as I'm sure you're aware, over the past several years, there's been a sexual revolution of sorts in which our culture has shirked many of the customs of past generations and embraced numerous changes in the way we understand sexuality and what is a sexual lifestyle, from homosexuality, transsexuality, gender reassignment, and much more. And, 
And there's so much we could say there, but what, what we must say is that what we think about when we think about gender and sexuality is of immense importance, always, but perhaps most significantly right now. Second is I have a deep respect for the single people who are of this church. Over 72% of our adult members are married. This means singles are in the minority. Singles, I am certain this disparity is widely apparent to you and shapes your experience of this church more than I know. In addition, each of your pastors are married and have children. And on Sunday mornings, this means regardless of how carefully we strive to care specifically for you, you hear more than a few stories of cute, cuddly infants, marital bliss and conflict, all of these types of things, things which you have never experienced personally. This means you're not only reminded of this disparity at times on Sunday morning, but have to do a bit of mental gymnastics to take the point away. And thank you for doing that without complaining. Third, while I've preached on singleness, specifically numerous times over the past several years to our singles ministry, FX, I have never done so on a Sunday morning. In fact, rarely have any of our pastors addressed this type of topic comprehensively on a Sunday morning. There's so much to preach on, right? And because we typically preach expositionally, verse by verse, most of what we get to preach on is assigned to us by the book that we're in. That being said, it's very important, even vital, for a topic like this to be addressed when all of the church is gathered. In fact, repeatedly, when Scripture addresses a specific group of people, a subset of people, it does so within a larger book. And 1 Corinthians is no exception. Paul is writing this big letter to address specific concerns and specific people, yet he does so by writing a letter to the whole church, a letter that's to be read to the whole church. Church. Why does he write that? Because the whole church has something to learn even when a certain group is addressed more specifically. God has deemed, deemed it important for us to listen and learn even when some of us are addressed more specifically. And singles need to learn as they have in years past through hearing messages about marriage. And married couples need to learn as I trust we have and will today by hearing messages about singleness and the context within marriage. We all need to learn. And what we're trying to see this morning is that your sexuality is God's gift to magnify Christ. That's where we're going. Your sexuality is God's gift to magnify Christ. Now, we're going to unpack this in 1 Corinthians through three points. The first point is your sexuality is not your identity. Your sexuality is not your identity. Now, our culture, and I'm not going to reference our culture all day long, so that may be a relief to you, but your culture, but for now I will, uh, your culture says your sexuality is the real you. That's what it's saying. That's in the newsprint every single day. How you express yourself, how you identify yourself, how you fulfill yourself sexually is the real do. It's the real you. It's the essence of who you are. It's your identity. That's what it begs us to believe. 
and live in light of. But these verses in 1 Corinthians press us to think very differently. And that's where we're going to go. Let me set the context a little bit. There's a lot going on in Corinth in the first century. Corinth was a prosperous city, known for its wealth, its luxury, its immorality, but not for its piety. The gospel, though, when the gospel came to town, so to speak, it, it was going forth and all kinds of people were getting saved. You saw that when we read that passage. He's just addressing group after different groups of people all within this little passage. So some were Jews that were getting saved. Some were Greeks that were getting saved. Some were married that were getting saved. Some were not married that were getting saved. Some were slaves that were getting saved. Some were free that were getting saved. Some were prosperous. Some were poor. And on and on and on. The spectrum of human differences was great in Corinth in the first century. And as the gospel transformed them, their minds exploded with questions. It's so funny that Paul asked a lot of questions to them. What should I do with the rest of my life? You know, we probably asked that question when we came to Christ. Should I stay in my current job? As a slave, should I try to break free? This is what they're asking. What about my marriage? Should I stay with this Greek husband, this unbelieving husband? Should I remain with him? Should we press on together? Should I leave him? If I do leave him, should I marry again? And many, many more. But all beneath those questions, it's as if they're asking, who really am I now? How am I to live now? Those questions that we found ourselves asking. You know, all of 1 Corinthians, all of 1 Corinthians is Paul's attempt to answer these specific questions. But before we dive into the specifics, we, I want to see how Paul begins. And from the opening verses, Paul urges them to remember their calling. So flip about three pages or four pages to, to 1 Corinthians 1. Look in verse 2. He says to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. Look down in verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So when Paul, before he begins to answer all their questions that came to him in a letter from them, he begins by reiterating their calling for God. So why is this emphasis on calling? Why does he begin this letter like this? I mean, they knew they were called. That's why they were asking questions, right? What did he want them to see? This is it. Paul wanted them to see the divine nature of their calling and how it transforms the way they view their lives. He wanted them to see the divine nature of their calling and how it transforms the way they view their life. We don't get a chance to unpack this passage and the other one this morning, but what he's wanting them to see is that calling is not the moment they heard the good news. It's not the moment they listened to the good news. It's not the moment they summoned their strength to respond to the good news. Well, no, no, no. Calling is the moment they heard the good news, yes, yes, because the Spirit had awakened them and in hearing delivered them to Christ. And so their calling was a calling, not where a message went out, but where a worshiper was summoned to fellowship. And it alerts us to the reality that behind a calling is a caller. 
And we didn't call on him. We didn't seek him. We didn't find him, nor did they. Our salvation and all the earthly details and circumstances of it were the result of sovereign grace. And this is what he wanted the Corinthians to see. They were called into fellowship with God, and this changed everything for them. And so, too, for us. Your calling is important, not just because it was something that happened back there, back then. Your calling is important because it's central to who you are. Sinclair Ferguson says one of the New Testament's most frequent one-word descriptions of the Christian is that he's called. One of the New Testament's most frequent one-word description of the Christian is that he is called. That it's shaped. It is what has happened to him, but it also describes who he is. Right? It, it describes that previous reality that has happened to him, and yet describes and defines who he is. In God's mercy, I was raised in a home where my dad was called. Yeah, he was a Christian. And there's so many ways in which my life has been shaped by his calling. But perhaps most poignant in recent years was when I stumbled upon a note card that had fallen out of his Bible when he was at our house. I think we have that note card for you. Dad's handwriting's horrible, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but he, 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 this, this note card fell out, and these are the questions he said he wanted to ask himself every day. What does it mean in the circumstance of my life to live for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me? How should I take up the cross and follow him? In what ways can I lose my life for his sake? But I love this last sentence, especially when he scratches out that four. And he says, I must remember who I am each day by remembering whose I am. What I think impresses me about that statement is that he, dad, dad, every day he wants to press calling into his daily life so that he finds identity in it alone. He wants to press calling, press what happened back then, press who he is in, the, in light of who, who, what, what Christ has done in his life. He wants to press it into his daily life such that it shapes his identity and such that he says, I am found in Christ alone. And therefore, I cannot know who I am unless I know whose I am, unless I know who has called me and who has summoned me. And therefore, if we've been called, our identity must not be defined by anything else, not even our sexuality. As I said, our culture says the real you is your sexuality. And we see this all over the place, right? It's so evident because the most unpardonable sin in our culture is to deny someone what they feel and long for sexually. So it's saying, and the reason it's most unpardonable sin is to deny that thing, to say you can't do that thing and faithfully follow Jesus Christ 
is to deny their personhood, deny who they are. Sam Alberry helps us understand what's going on in those moments. Denying someone's sexuality is seen as denying who that person really is. It's telling them to repress something central to their identity and consequently their ability to flourish. It is not biblical Christianity that insists someone's sexual disposition is so foundational to who they are and that to fail to affirm their particular leaning is to attack who that person is at the core. Now, obviously, we see this in all that's going on with homosexuality and the homosexual agenda in our culture, but we see it other places as well, such that the sexual expression begins to be equated with the identity and the personhood. But your sexuality is not the real you. That's what we've been trying to say. And how you're able to legitimately express your sexuality is not the real you. Biblical Christianity says the real you, your identity, the core of who you are, the essence of who you are is found in your calling to Jesus Christ. And that it can never be found in sexuality or in any of the ways you're able to express it. Now, I imagine we all affirm that truth heartily. But at times, I wonder if we fail to help our single brothers and sisters live in light of it. We unconsciously undermine this when we relate to single people as if their most pressing concern is to be matched up. Like their singleness is a problem to be solved or a loose end to be tied. If we believe what we've just said, what we've just read, then the, their most pressing concern has been resolved in Christ. Praise God. And we relate to them as called brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We can at times also undermine, I, I can too, so I'm speaking to myself, undermine this when we subtly lead them to believe that their life is less than until they find a spouse, as if it's in some seasonal change, you know, as if it's just in a development, an embryonic stage or something like that, as if their life is just lacking something that's waiting for them in the future. That's not true if this is true. And we believe it is. Secondly, your sexuality is ordered by God's providential gift. So you can flip back to 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, let, me, let me remind you of that context. Remember, people were getting radically saved. They're asking all those questions. Who am I? What am I to do with my life? Now, when Paul begins to answer these questions, he, and he picks it up in, in 1 Corinthians 7, he takes up that idea of calling again. So we saw that in, in 1 Corinthians 1, and we see it in a pronounced way in 1 Corinthians 7. Seven times he says calling or called. Seven times he reiterates this concern. And when he begins to answer their questions, he urges them to view their present circumstances as God's calling to them. So look in verse 7. He said, only let each person lead the life that the Lord is a sign into which God has called him. What's, what's going on here? Well, Paul's saying 
He's underlined an important principle is that your present situation is ordered by God's call, by his providence. Obviously, there's a little different than the calling from death to life in Christ and into a calling of earthly affairs. Your life is as the Lord assigned. It's as God has called. The idea and the way these things come together is that, that uh, upon coming to Christ, we're to view our circumstance, all our circumstances and relationships in this life as ordered by his providence and meant to be lived out as a calling unto him. So called in Christ results in callings in our life to be rendered unto him. So it transforms the way we view everything. That's why in, in 19 to 24, he says, remain with God in your calling. Okay, does that make sense? Um, but Paul takes this, this principle a step further and applies it to marriage and singleness as well. What he's called us to is a gift to us as well. Look in verse 7. He says, I wish that all were as my, I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind or another. Each has his own gift, one of one kind, marriage, or another, singleness. So, so what's this gift? You know, we've heard it referred to like the gift of celibacy, or the gift of singleness. Now, according to these verses, what is this gift? Is this kind of this, this gift of a lack of sexual desire? Is that what Paul's talking about? He's just talking about someone who lacks sexual desire, doesn't desire to express himself sexually, or is it someone who has this indomitable self-control, right? He has, his control, he has his sexual desire under control. Well, no, not according to these verses. That's not what's going on. He's not talking about someone who doesn't have a sexual desire. He's not talking about someone who has this indomitable self-control. What he's saying is that the gift is your providentially assigned marital status. Your gift is your providentially assigned and arranged marital status. Now, now the gift is not the circumstances, you know? Some people go from marriage to, or go from marriage to singleness in a way that they didn't desire, right? But through, through adultery or, uh, or through divorce or through something like that. The gift is not the circumstances themselves, but the opportunity to render them unto the Lord. Does that make sense? So he's saying, he's saying your sexuality is not your identity, as we've said. Your sexuality is a gift that's ordered by God's providence. Your gift is your sexuality, and it's your calling. Right now, I, I'll never forget, I was in seminary, and the meaning of this passage just really was pressed home to me in a powerful way. I was a young man. I was single. I was going to seminary. Passage, uh, the, I had this kind of eccentric but very intelligent seminary professor. He liked to wear ties that matched what he was teaching about that day. So he'd wear a nice, beautiful planet tie when he taught about the creation. And then Genesis 3 got really uh, weird and yucky. And uh, you, know, you have a flood tie. I mean, this guy was totally great uh, and, and, and very eccentric. But then when he was teaching about this passage, he's trying to 
impress into us what Paul's trying to say. At one point he said, I'm so sick and tired of single men telling me they're called to be married. If you're not married, you're not called to be married. He said, that's what Paul's trying to say. If you're not presently married, you're not called to be married. So he's saying to some of us, don't talk like that, right? But it pressed it into my mind in a way that I'd never heard or seen before. That our present situation is not the, the, the result of kind of happenstance or things unraveling in different ways, but there's, there's a result of God's good and providential hand. And that that, according to Paul, is our calling. Now, this is striking the way he talks in this passage. In the midst of an inspired Bible that's radically pro-marriage, Paul elevates singleness and calls it a gift alongside marriage. In fact, he says, I wish that all were single as I myself am. While marriage is viewed as good, and we affirm that, so too is singleness, according to Paul. It's a gift. It's an opportunity to focus on pleasing the Lord, on securing undivided devotion to him, of serving him. So I want to ask, do we think like this? Do we think more like our culture? Do we view singleness as a plan B or a second best? Or marriage as the ideal and singleness as the unfortunate reality? In light of these verses, we mustn't think like that. Marshall Stegall helps clarify this for me and for us. When he writes, most of us today have been conditioned to think of marriage as the ideal and wonder whether we could ever survive singleness. Paul thinks it should be the other way around. In his mind, there is a simplicity and freedom and unity to an unmarried heart in love with Jesus that every Christian should envy. And as, as beautiful and indispensable as marriage might be in the church, Paul sees that it does not make following Jesus any, more, any easier or more complete. In fact, it puts some distance between us and Christ. A necessary distance, a God-ordained distance, a Christ-exalting, gospel-declaring distance, but a distance. Much of the time and attention and energy we would have spent alone with our Lord or evangelizing the lost or discipling young believers is now spent caring for a spouse or for a family. Paul loves that kind of ministry. But here, in 1 Corinthians 7, he's correcting a common misconception that the fullest Christian life happens only in marriage. Isn't that so good? That's what Paul's doing here. He said, when married people, when they get married, they got trouble coming. You know? You can't have conflicts by yourself. Or they, they're not as interesting and messy, I guess. There's trouble. There's worldly cares and anxiety. With the family, there's anxieties about mouths to feed, children to train. It's not that it's a, it's, it's a more superior anxiety or anything like that. He's just, he just alerting us to that reality. That's what he's trying to say. And you've got to see what Paul's trying to do here. You see, he's, he's doing something different than, than what we typically do. Often we compare the positives of marriage with the negatives of singleness. And so we say, well, in marriage you have intimacy, friendship, and all these things, but in singleness you have loneliness 
and disappointment in that way, but Paul is flipping the scales. He's comparing the difficulties of marriage, of worldly troubles, anxieties, of pleasing a spouse with the, with the blessings of singleness, of undivided devotion, of freedom to respond to God's call wherever God might lead. So you see the difference of what's going on, the difference the way we view it and the difference the way Paul views it is because we have different emphases in that respect. And it's Paul's urging us to see it more clearly and to see. And Sam Alberry helps us again. He writes, it is not the teaching of Jesus that tells you, tells you that life is not worth, it, worth living if you can't be fulfilled sexually, that a life without sex is no life at all. It's not the teaching of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus does two things. It restricts sex and it relativizes its importance. Jesus shows us that in, God, in its God-given context, the value of sex is far greater than we might have imagined. And yet, even there, it is not ultimate. Sex is a powerful urge, but it is not fundamental to wholeness, human flourishing. Jesus showed that both in his teaching and in his lifestyle, after all, Jesus, the most fully human of all, all people, remained celibate himself. You see? You see what he's trying to say? It's not fundamental. It's not necessary. And there's a way of living unto Christ and being fulfilled without sex. Now we might say, yeah, 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 but that's Jesus, right? You know, he's kind of suited a little bit differently than us. But take Paul. Paul was the chief apostle. He remained celibate his whole life. He was free to serve the Lord. How many times did he take up his tent and move to another town? How many times did the gospel go forth somewhere else or where he wanted to take the gospel that he moved again and, and, and the people that moved with him? And so his, his life was free from that marital anxiety and so he was free to move where the gospel was moving and free to proclaim it. And his life is filled with gospel fruitfulness. It's no wonder that Paul has 13 letters. How many does Peter have? You know? And John, I mean, he's a little bit closer, but he's not at 13. And it's not just because, and Paul was brilliant, right? But it's not just that. It's that his, his life could be conformed and shaped in a different way. And it's good and right. And, and his, his life also abounded with, with friends. There's books talking about the Pauline circle. In Romans 16, he lists 26 people by name, greets them by name. Is that a lonely man's life? No, I don't think so at all. He's, he's overflowing with his gospel fruitfulness and community and fellowship such that it overflows into so many different friends. He, he saw the way God had ordered his life and he spent it for Christ. Our sexuality is God's gift and is ordered by his good providence. Let us not call second best what God calls good. Whether in singleness or marriage, your sexuality is your, God's good gift to magnify Christ. Now our culture mocks pure celibate singles. It views the poor celibate single life as silly, prudish, and miserable. The list of movies, 40 year 
40 Year Virgin or 40 Days and 40 Nights are, are, are uh, movies that just mock this. How could, you, how could you remain sexually unfulfilled in this way? But we mustn't think like that. And while I speak with very little experience, for this reason and many others, it's very difficult to live as a pure celibate single Christian in our culture. And I thank God that we have so many that do it with faith, joy and faithfulness. And while we should honor faithful marriages, we must honor faithful singles as well who remain godly and pure and celibate for Christ. Point three, the expression of your sexuality will soon fade away. Thought that might be a little bit overstated, so I put the expression in there. Your sexuality will soon fade away, but I just put the expression, because the, the latter's not completely true, but the expression of your sexuality will soon fade away. Now, Paul concludes this section with a really stark picture of the present world. You probably remembered it when I read it. He, he begins to touch all these things we shouldn't do anymore. We should kind of live as if, if we're married, we should live like we're not married right? We should rejoice like we're not rejoicing. We should mourn like we're not mourning. I mean, I don't know what's going on with you, but when I read that the first time, I'm like, what's going on, Paul? You just said you, all, you wanted all of us to be single, and now you're saying for the married to act like they aren't married? Did you have something wild in your lunch this morning or this afternoon? But even more than that, maybe you, maybe you think this is kind of this doomsday type mentality, almost if Paul appears like another world is going to end, uh, a world's going to end tomorrow, clean up your act and focus on the right thing, doomsday, it's all going to blow up type mentality, but that's not what's going on at all. There's actually something more and very important for us to see going on here. Paul's not calling us to live as if the world will end tomorrow. So that. Uh, rather, he, as those called in Christ, he's urging us to radically change the way we live in this world and the way we view our relation with it. We live in the in-between. We just sang about it. Christ has come. He's suffered through his death and resurrection for us, and he's brought us into the kingdom of God. He reigns from heaven and possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, and he summoned us from death to life in Jesus Christ. Yet this world and us in it remain. All the allurements continue to entice. Sin, disease, and death continue to linger on. And while we've been called in Christ and ushered into his kingdom, we still live in this world. And so what he's saying, in effect, with all these strange little statements, is that live in this world, but do not live for anything in this world. Live in this world. So it's something we kind of heard him say before, but live in this world, but do not live for anything in this world. Don't give anything in this world the ultimacy, the, the everything that belongs to Christ. Don't give anything in this world your ultimate allegiance. And so he says to married couples, he says, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Let those who have Husbands live as though they had none. We have to let this settle on us a little bit. He's not saying don't mind the spouse that you have. He's not saying live free. Don't tell her when you're coming home for dinner. 
He's, he's not saying, don't be anxious anymore. He's already established that. Married couples should and must be anxious in this life about keeping their marriage. But he is saying, don't love your marriage too much. Don't think of it too much. Don't work at it too much. Don't please your wife too much. Don't let caring for your spouse lead you away from creating honest relationship with others around you in the community. Now you may be thinking, wait, wait, wait. I'm supposed to love her as Christ loved the church. Are you saying there's a limit to that love? Yes. There's a way of loving your spouse and your children and your family and your nice suburban life that's ungodly and places them at the center which belongs to Christ. What he's saying is your marriage is passing away. It will soon be no longer. There will be no giving or taking in marriage in the resurrection, Jesus said. And you will be ushered into a marriageless eternity where all the focus will be on Jesus Christ and not your spouse or your family. And as married couples in a church like ours that's pro-marriage, pro-life, pro-family, pro-faithful parenting, we must remember that our family, our ultimate family, is the church of Jesus Christ. Our ultimate family is not the people that gather around the table each night. It's the worldwide, multi-ethnic, called people who love and follow Jesus Christ. The family is meant to build the church and build the broader family of the local church, not vice versa. Family isolated from true community quickly goes astray and becomes centered on itself. In line with 1 Corinthians 7, we could add, let, this, let those who are single live as though they weren't. Those who are single live as though they weren't. On the one hand, if we were to amend Paul's letter and add that, but I think it's a faithful application. Don't let your singleness lead you to selfishness. Though I haven't been single in 11 years, I can only imagine how difficult it is to live as a single in our self-absorbed, self-focused culture. Our culture encourages you to fulfill yourself and provides all manner of avenues to do so. It, it gives you no governor and, and commends no limits to you. Don't let your single, singleness lead you to love yourself too much. Don't isolate yourself. <laughs> As one of your pastors, I say that with all my heart. Don't lean only on those like you. Deliberately petition Position yourself to live honestly with folks unlike you. Don't long for marriage too much. On the other hand, don't let your singleness limit your dreams for Christ. Now, we talk a lot, and the Bible talks a lot about the picture that marriage is of Christ and his loving relationship with the church. And it's a wonderful picture, and we should talk about it a lot. It's a wonderful and great picture. It's a metaphor of what Christ has done for his church, but you have an opportunity to present another picture, and you do so so well already, and I just want to commend you and press you even more, but in the midst of a self-obsessed culture, 
you have a chance to say, my relationship to Christ is so much more satisfying than the cheap sex our culture offers. Is it hard? I can only imagine how hard it is. But you can say, as seasons come and go, as friends come and go, as black hairs turn to gray, Christ is sweeter still. And my relationship with him is all I need. Only you can say that. I cannot say that in a way that you can. Oh, this culture... And this church needs to hear you say it even more loudly than you already do. Don't rest until you can say it with all your heart. Don't rest until you can present that picture week in, week out, year in, year out. To us, we need to see that picture. We need to hear that testimony. We need to know that Christ is sweeter still. And don't wait to lead and encourage us until you're married. And again, this is already going on. I'm not worried about this, but you have gifts and talents we need in order to be a faithful and lovely church. Please don't wait until you're married to start leading and encouraging us. Thank you for throwing your life into this church, and please do so all the more, that we might be more faithful, more lovely, and more beautiful to Christ and also to this world. Our sexuality is a gift to magnify Christ. It's a temporary gift in in one sense. It's soon going to pass away. And in the resurrection, the ultimate purpose of our sexuality will be clear. Scripture's hinted to this day again and again and again, like in Ezekiel 16, when the prophet speaks devastatingly of God rescuing and cleansing his dirty bride. And in Zephaniah 3, when the prophet speaks of God rejoicing over his bride like a bridegroom, In the new heavens, in the new earth, in the resurrection, the present forms of expressing our sexuality through singleness or marriage will fade away as all of history culminates in the marriage supper of the Lamb. There we'll see. The way we've been made is for one reason, that we might be gathered into this bride and for all eternity enjoy the greatness of his showering bridegroom love for all eternity. To him be praised. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in celebrating God's grace and pursuing God's purpose.